test. I apologize for the microphone quality. It's like 5.30 a.m. and I can't sleep. And for some reason I woke up thinking about this Alice Monroe short story. I don't know yet uh, what will come of it, but I thought I'd read it to you. Uh, Max has my mic, so I'm using just the one on my computer. So that's why I apologized. <laughs> Material. I don't keep up with Hugo's writing. Sometimes I see his name in the library on the cover of some literary journal that I don't open. I haven't opened a literary journal in a dozen years, praise God. Or I read in the paper or see on a poster, this would be in the library too, or in a bookstore, an announcement of a panel discussion at the university, with Hugo flown in to discuss the state of the novel today, or the contemporary short story or the new nationalism in our literature. Then I think, will people really go? Will people who could be swimming or drinking or going for a walk really take themselves out to the campus to find the room and sit in rows listening to those vain, quarrelsome men? Bloated, opinionated, untidy men. That is how I see them, cosseted by the academic life, the literary life, by women. People will go to hear them People will go to hear them say that such and such is a writer. People will go to hear them say that such and such a writer is not worth reading anymore, and that some writer must be read. To hear them dismantle and glorify and argue and chuckle and shock. People, I say, but I mean women, middle-aged women like me, alert and trembling, hoping to ask intelligent questions and not to be ridiculed. Soft-haired young girls awash in adoration, hoping to lock eyes with one of the men on the platform. Girls and women, too, fall in love with such men. They imagine there is power in them. The wives of the men on the platform are not in the audience. They are buying groceries or cleaning up messes or having gross self-advertising, secretly unpleasant, restless men. But it seems to be the truth. He is not curious. He is able to take pleasure and give off smiles and caresses and to say softly, Why do you worry about that? It's not a problem of yours. He has forgotten the language of his childhood. His lovemaking was strange to me at first because it was lacking in desperation. He made love without emphasis, so to speak, with no memory of sin or hope or depravity. He does not watch himself. He will never write a poem about it, never, and indeed may have forgotten it in half an hour. Such men are commonplace, perhaps. It was only that I had not known any. I used to wonder if I would have fallen in love with him if his accent and his forgotten or nearly forgotten past had been taken away, if he had been, say, an engineering student in my own year at college. I don't know. I can't tell. What holds anybody in a man or a woman may be something as flimsy as a Romanian accent or the calm curve of an eyelid, some half-fraudulent mystery. No mystery of this sort about Hugo. I did not miss it, did not know about it, maybe would not have believed in it. I believed in something else then, not that I knew him all the way though, but the part I knew was in my blood from time to time would give me a poison rush. None of that with Gabriel. He does not disturb me any more than he has disturbed himself. It was Gabriel who found me Hugo's story. We were in a bookstore and he came to me with a large expensive paperback collection of short stories. There was Hugo's name on the cover. I wondered how Gabriel found it. 
what he had been doing in the fiction section of the store anyway. He never reads fiction. I wondered if he sometimes went and looked for things by Hugo. He is interested in Hugo's, Hugo's career, as he would be interested in the career of a magician or a popular singer or a politician with whom he had, through me, a plausible connection, proof of reality. I think it is because he does, not, he does such anonymous work himself, work intelligible only to his kind. He is fascinated by people who work daringly out in the public eye without the protection of any discipline. It must seem so to an engineer, just trying to trust themselves and elaborating their bag of tricks and hoping to catch on. Buy it for Clea, he said. Isn't it a lot of money for a paperback? He smiled. There's your father's picture, your real father. And he has written the story you might like to read, I said to Clea, who's in the kitchen making toast. She is 17. Some days she eats toast and honey and peanut butter and Oreos and cream cheese and chicken sandwiches and fried potatoes. If any comments on what she is eating or not eating, she happily runs upstairs and slams the door to her room. He looks overweight, said Clea, and put the book down. He always said he was skinny. Her interest in her father is all from the point of view of heredity and what genes he might have passed on to herself. Did he have a bad complexion? Did he have a high IQ? Do women in his family have big breasts? He was when I knew him, I said. How was I to know what would happen to him since? He looked, however, very much as I would have thought he would have looked by now. When I saw his name in the newspaper or on a poster, I had pictured somebody like this. I had foreseen the ways in which time and his life would have changed him. It did not surprise me that he had got fat, but not bald, that he had let his hair grow wild and had grown a full curly beard. Pouches under his eyes, a dragged down look to the cheeks even when he is laughing. He is laughing into the camera. His teeth have gone from bad to worse. He hated Dennis and his father died of a heart attack in the dentist's chair. A lie, like so much else, or at least an exaggeration. He used to smile crookedly for the photographs, to hide the top right incisor, dead since somebody at high school pushed him into a drinking fountain. Now he doesn't care. He laughs. He spares those rotting stumps. He looks, at the same time, woe-begone and cheerful. A Rabelaisian writer. Checked wool shirt open at the top to show his undershirt. He didn't used to wear one. Do you wash, Hugo? Do you have bad breath? With those teeth? Do you call your girl students fond, exasperated, dirty names? Are there phone calls from insulted parents? Does the dean or somebody else have to explain that no harm is meant? That writers are not as other men are? Probably not. Probably no one minds. Outrageous writers may bounce from one blessing to another nowadays, bewildered as passively reared children has said to be, by excess of approval. I have no proof. I construct somebody from this one smudgy picture. And I am content with such cliches. I have not the imagination or goodwill to proceed differently, and I have noticed anyway, everybody must have noticed as we go further into middle age, how shop-worn and simple, really, are the disguises, the identities, if you like, that people take up. In fiction, in Hugo's business, such disguises would not do. But in life, they are always seem to want, all anybody can manage. Look at Hugo's picture. Look at that undershirt. Listen to what it says about him. Hugo Johnson was born and semi-educated in the bush and in the mining lumbering towns of northern Ontario. He has worked as a lumberjack, beer slinger, counterman, telephone lineman, and sawmill foreman, 
and has been sporadically affiliated with various academic communities. He now lives most of the time on the side of the mountain above Vancouver with his wife and six children. The student wife, it seems, got stuck with all the children. What happened to Mary Frances? Did she die? Is she liberated? Did he drive her crazy? He listened to the lies, the half lies, the absurdities. He lives on the side of a mountain above Vancouver. It sounded as if he lives in a wilderness cabin. And all it means, I'm willing to bet, is that he lives in an ordinary, comfortable house in North or West Vancouver, which now stretch far up the mountain. He has been sporadically affiliated with various academic communities. What does that mean? If it means he has taught for years, most of his adult life at universities, that teaching at universities has been the only steady, well-paid job he has ever had, then why doesn't it say so? You would think he came out of the bush by now, and then to fling them scraps of wisdom, to give them a demonstration of what a real male writer, a creative artist, is like. You would never think he was a practicing academic. I don't know if he was a lumberjack or a beer slinger or a counterman but I do know he was not a telephone line man. He had a job painting telephone poles. He quit that job in the middle of the second week because the heat and the climbing made him sick. It was broiling June just after we had both graduated. Fair enough. The sun really did make him sick. Twice he came home and vomited. I have quit jobs myself that I cannot stand. That same summer, I quit my job folding bandages at the Victoria Hospital because I was going mad with boredom. But if I was a writer, and I was listening to all my varied and colorful occupations, I don't think I would put down bandage folder. I don't think I would find that entirely honest. After he quit, Hugo found a job making grade 12 examination papers. Why didn't he put that one down? Examination marker. He liked marking examination papers better than he liked climbing telephone poles, and he probably better than he liked lumberjacking or beer slinging or any of those other things if he ever did them. Why couldn't he put it down? Examination marker. Nor has he, to my knowledge, ever been the foreman in a sawmill. He worked in his uncle's mill the summer before I met him. What he did all day was load lumber and get sworn at by real foremen, who didn't like him because of his uncle being the boss. In the evenings, if he was not too tired, he used to walk half a mile to a little creek and play his recorder. Black flies bothered him, but he did it anyway. He could play Morning from Peter Nint and some Elizabethan airs whose names I've forgotten, except for one, Woolsey's Wild. I actually learned to play it on the piano so he could play a duet. Was that meant for Cardinal Woolsey? And what was a wild dance? Put that down, Hugo. Recorder player. That would be quite all right, quite in fashion now, as I understand things. Recorder playing and such fay activities are now out of favor, quite the contrary. Indeed, they may be more acceptable than all that lumberjacking and beer slinging. Look at you, Hugo. Your image is not only fake, but out of date. You should have said you meditated for a year in the mountains of Uttar Pradesh. You should have said you'd taught creative drama to autistic children. You should have shaved your head, shaved your beard, put on a monk's cowl. And you should have shut up, Hugo. When I was pregnant with Cleo, we lived in a house on Argyle Street in Vancouver. It was such a sad gray stucco house on the outside in the rainy winter that we painted all the inside rooms, vivid, ill-chosen colors. Three walls of the bedroom were Wedgwood blue. One was magenta. We said it was an experiment to see if color could drive anyone mad. 
The bathroom was a deep orange yellow. It's like being inside a cheese, Hugo said when we finished it. That's right, it is, I said. That's very good, phrase maker. He was pleased, but not as pleased as if he'd written it. After that, he said, every time he showed anybody the bathroom, see the color? It's like being inside a cheese. Or, it's like peeing inside a cheese. Not that I didn't do the same thing. Save things up, say them over and over. Maybe I said that about peeing inside a cheese. We had many phrases in common. We both called the landlady the Green Hornet because she had worn, the only time we had seen her, a poison green outfit with bits of ratful and a clutch of violets, and had given off a venomous sort of buzz. She was over 70 and she ran a downtown boarding house for men. Her daughter, Dottie, was called the harlot in residence. I wonder why we chose to say harlot. That was not, and is not a word in general use. I suppose it had a classy sound, a classy depraved sound, contrasting ironically. We were strong on irony with Dottie herself. She lived in a two-bedroom apartment in the basement of the house. She was supposed to pay her mother $45 monthly rent, and she told me she meant to try and make the money babysitting. I can't go out to work, she said, on account of my nerves. My last husband, I had him six months dying down at mother's, dying with his kidney disease, and I owe her $300 board still on that. She made me make him his eggnog skim milk. I'm broke every day of my life. They say it's all right not having wealth if you got health, but what if you have never, neither one? Bronchitis pneumonia from time to time. I was three years old. Rheumatic fever at 12. 16, I married my first husband. He was killed in a logging accident. Three miscarriages. My womb is in shreds. I use up three packs of Kotex every month. I married a dairy farmer out in the valley, and his herd got the fever. Wiped us out. That was the one who died with his kidneys. No wonder. No wonder my nerves are shot. I am condensing. This came out at greater length and by no means dolefully, indeed with some amazement and pride at Dottie's table. She asked me down for cups of tea, then for beer. This is life, I thought, fresh from books, classes, essays, discussions. Unlike her mother, Dottie was a flat-faced, soft, doughy fashion for defeat, the kind of colorless, puzzled woman you see carrying a shopping bag, waiting for the bus. In fact, I had seen her once on a bus downtown and not recognized her at first in her dull blue winter coat. Her rooms were full of heavy furniture salvaged from her marriage. An upright piano, overstuffed Chesterfield and chairs, walnut veneer china cabinet and dining room table where we sat. In the middle of the table was a tremendous lamp with a painted china base and a pleated dark red silk shade held out at an extravagant angle like a hoop skirt. I described it to Hugo. That is a whorehouse lamp, I said. Afterwards, I wanted to be congratulated on the accuracy of this description. I told Hugo he ought to pay more attention to Dottie if he wanted to be a writer. I told him about her husband's and her womb and her collection of souvenir spoons. And he said I was welcome to look at them all by myself. He was writing a verse play. Once, when I went down to put coal on the furnace, I found Dottie in her pink Chanel dressing gown, saying goodbye to a man in a uniform some sort of delivery man or gas station attendant. It was the middle of the afternoon. She and this man were not parting in any way that suggested either lechery or affection, and I would have not understood anything about it. I probably would have thought he was some relative if she had not begun at once a long, complicated, slightly drunk story about how she had gotten wet in the rain and had to leave her clothes at her mother's house, 
and had worn home her mother's dress, which was too tight, and that was why she was now in her dressing gown. She said that first Larry caught her in it delivering some sewing and wanted to do wanted her to do for his wife, and now me, and she didn't know what we would think of her. This was strange, as I had seen her in a dressing gown many times before, in the middle of her laughing and explaining. The man, who had not looked at me, not smiled, not said a word in any way, backed up her story, simply ducked out of the door. Dottie has a lover, I said to Hugo. You don't get enough. You're trying to make life interesting, he said. The next week, I watched to see if this man came back. He did not, but three other men came, and one came twice. They walked with their heads down quickly and did not have to wait at the basement door. Hugo could not deny it. He said it was life imitating art again. It was bound to happen, after all, the fat, varicose-veined whores he'd met in books. It was then that we named her the harlot in residence and began to brag about her to our friends. They stood behind the curtains to catch a glimpse of her going in and out. That's not her, they said. Is that her? Isn't she disappointing? Doesn't she have any professional clothes? Don't be so naive, we said. Do you think they all wore spangles and boas? Everybody hushed to hear her play the piano. She sang or hummed along with her playing, not steadily, but loudly, in the rather defiant, self-parodying voice people use when they're alone, or think that they are alone. She sang Yellow Rose of Texas, and you can't be true, dear. Boys should sing hymns. We'll get her to learn some. You're all such voyeurs, so mean, said a girl named Mary Frances Schrecker a big-boned, calm-faced girl with black braids down her back. She was married to a former mathematical prodigy, Ellsworth Schrecker, who had had a breakdown. She worked as a dietitian. Hugo said he could not look at her without thinking of the word lumpen, but he supposed she might be nourishing, like oatmeal porridge. She became his second wife. I thought she was the right wife for him. I thought she would stay forever, nourishing him, but the student evicted her. The piano playing was an entertainment for our friends, but disastrous on the days when Hugo was home trying to work. He was supposed to be our working on his thesis, but really he was writing his play. He worked in our bedroom at the card table in front of the window, facing a board fence. When Dottie had been playing for a bit, he might come out to the kitchen and stick his face into mine and say in a low, even tone of self-consciously controlled rage, you go down and tell her to cut that out. You go. I'd say. Bloody hell, she's your friend. You cultivate her. You encourage her. I never told her to play the piano. I arranged so that I could have this afternoon free. That did not just happen. I arranged it. I'm at a crucial point. I'm at the point where this play lives or dies. If I go down there, I'm afraid I might strangle her. Well, don't look at me. Don't strangle me. Excuse my breathing and everything. I always did go down to the basement, of course, and knock on Dottie's door and ask her if she would not mind playing the piano now because my husband was at home trying to work. I never said the word right. Hugo had trained me not to. That word was like a, bar a bare wire to us. Dottie apologized every single time. She was scared of Hugo and respectful of his work and his intelligence. She left off playing, but the trouble was she might forget she might start again in an hour, half an hour. The possibility made me nervous and miserable. Because I was pregnant, I always wanted to eat, and I would sit at the kitchen table greedily. 
unhappily eating something like a warmed-up plate full of Spanish rice. Hugo felt the world was hostile to his writing. He not only felt all its human inhabitants, but its noises and diversions and ordinary clutter were linked against him, maliciously, purposely, diabolically thwarting and maiming him and keeping him from his work. And I, whose business it was to throw myself between him and the world, was failing to do so. By choice, perhaps, as much as an ineptitude for the job. I did not believe in him. I had not understood how it would be necessary to believe in him. I believed that he was clever and talented, whatever that might mean, but I was not sure he would turn out to be a writer. He did not have the authority I thought a writer should have. He was too nervous, too touchy with everybody, too much of a show-off. I believed the writers were calm, sad people, knowing too much. I believed that there was a difference about them, something hard and shining, rare, intimidating quality they had from the beginning, and Hugo didn't have it. I thought that someday he would recognize this. Meanwhile, he lived in a house, he lived in a world whose rewards and punishments were as strange and hidden, and hidden for me as if he had been a lunatic. He would sit at supper, pale and disgusted. He would clench himself over the typewriter in furious paralysis when I had to get something from the bedroom. Or he would leap around the living room asking me what he was. A rhinoceros who thinks he is a gazelle? Chairman Mao dancing a war dance in a dream by, Dulles, by John Foster Dulles. And then kiss me all over the neck and throat with hungry gobbling noises. I was cut off from the source of these glad or bad moods. I did not affect them. I teased him sourly. So those after we have the baby, the house is on fire, and the baby and the play are both in there. Which would you say? Both, he said. But supposing you can only save one. Never mind the baby. Suppose I am in there. Or, no, I'm drowning here, and you are here and cannot possibly reach us both. You're making it awfully tough for me. I know I am. I know I am. Don't you hate me? Of course I hate you. After this dialogue, we might go to bed, squealing, mock-fighting, excited. All our life together, the successful part of our life together, was games. We made up conversations to startle people on the bus. Once, we sat in a beer parlor, and he berated me for going out with other men and leaving the children alone while he was off in the bush working to support us. He pleaded with me to remember my duty as a wife and as a mother. I blew smoke in his face. People around us were looking stern and gratified. When we got outside, we laughed till we had to hold each other up against a wall. We played in bed that I was Lady Chatterley and he was Mellors. Where, where be that little rascal John Thomas, he said thickly. I cannot find John Thomas. Frightfully sorry, I think I must have swallowed him, I said all ladylike. There was a water pump in the basement. It made a steady, thumping noise. The house was on fairly low lying ground, not far from the Fraser River, and during the rainy weather, the pump had to work most of the time to keep us in the basement from being flooded. We had a dark, rainy January, as is unusual, as is usual in Vancouver. This was followed by a dark, rainy February. Hugo and I felt gloomy. I slept a lot of the time. Hugo couldn't sleep. He claimed it was the pump that kept him awake. He couldn't work because of it in the daytime, and he couldn't sleep because of it at night. The pump had replaced Dottie's piano playing as the thing that most enraged and depressed him in our house. 
not only because of this noise, but because of the money it was costing us. Its entire cost went to our electricity bill, though it was Dottie who lived in the basement and reaped the benefits of not being flooded. He said I should speak to Dottie. I said Dottie could not pay the expenses she already had. He said she could turn more tricks, and I told him to shut up. As I became more pregnant, slower and heavier, and more confined to the house, I got fonder of Dottie, used to her, less likely to store up and repeat what she said. I felt more at home with her than I did sometimes with Hugo or our friends. All right, Hugo said. I ought to phone the landlady. I said he ought. He said he had far too much to do. The truth was we both shrank from a confrontation with the landlady, knowing in advance how she would confuse and defeat us with shrill, evasive prattle. In the middle of the night, in the middle of a rainy week, I woke up and wondered what had weakened me. It was the silence. Hugo, wake up. The pump's broken. I can't hear the pump. I am awake, Hugo said. It's still raining and the pump isn't going. It must be broken. No, it isn't. It's shut off. I shut it off. I sat up and turned on the light. He was lying on his back, squinting and trying to give me a hard look at the same time. You didn't turn it off. All right, I didn't. You did? I couldn't stand the goddamn expense anymore. I couldn't stand thinking about it. Couldn't stand the noise either. I haven't had any sleep in a week. The basement will flood. I'll turn it on in the morning. A few hours, peace is all I want. It'll be too late. It's raining torrents. It is not. You, go to the window. It's raining. It's not raining torrents. I turned out the light and laid down and said in a calm, stern voice, Listen to me, Hugo. You have to go and turn it on. Dottie will be flooded out. In the morning. No, you have to go and turn it on now. Well, I'm not. If you're not, I am. No, you're not. I am. But I didn't move. Don't be such an alarmist. Hugo! Don't cry. Your stuff will be ruined. Best thing that could happen to it. Anyway, it won't. He lay beside me, stiff and wary, waiting, I suppose, for me to get out of bed, go down to the basement, and figure out how to turn the pump on. Then, what would he have done? He could not have hit me. I was too pregnant. He never did hit me unless I hit him first. He could have gone and turned it off again. I could have turned it on, and so on. How long could that last? He could have held me down, but if I struggled, he would have been afraid of hurting me. He could have sworn at me and left the house, but we had no car, and it was raining too hard for him to stay out very long. He probably would have just raged and sulked alternately, and I could have taken a blanket and gone to sleep on the living room couch for the rest of the night. I think that is what a woman of firm character would have done. I think that is what a woman who wanted that marriage to last would have done. But I didn't do it. Instead, I said to myself that I did not know how the pump worked. I did not know where to turn it on. I said to myself that I was afraid of Hugo. I entertained the possibility that Hugo might be right, and nothing would happen. But I wanted something to happen, and I wanted Hugo to crash. When I woke up, Hugo was gone, and the pump was something as usual. Dottie was pounding at the door at the top of the basement stairs. You won't believe your eyes what's down here. I'm up to my knees in water. I just put my feet out of bed, and I'm up to my knees in water. What happened? Did you hear the pump go off? No, I said. I don't know what could have gone wrong. I guess it could have gotten overworked. 
I had a couple of beers before I went to bed, else I would have known there was something wrong. I usually sleep light, but I wasn't sleeping like the dead, and I put my feet out of bed, and Jesus, it's a good thing I didn't pull the light switch at the same time. I would have been electrocuted. Everything's floating. Nothing was floating, and the water would not have come to any grown person's knees. It was about five inches deep in some places, only one or two in others, the floor being so uneven. It had soaked and stained the bottom of her Chesterfield and chairs and gotten into the bottom of her piano. The floor tiles were loosened, the rug soggy, the edges of her bedspread dripping, and her floor heater ruined. I got dressed and put on a pair of Hugo's boots and took down a broom. I started sweeping the water towards the drain outside the door. Dottie made herself a cup of coffee in my kitchen and sat for a while on the top step watching me, going over the same monologue about having a couple of beers and sleeping more soundly than usual, not hearing the pump go off, not understanding why it should go off, if it had gone off, not knowing how she was going to explain to her mother, who would certainly make it out to be her fault and charge her. We were in luck, I saw. We were? Dottie's expectation and thrifty relish of misfortune made her less likely than almost anyone else would have been to investigate just what had gone wrong. After the water level went down a bit, she went into her bedroom, put on some clothes and some books, which she sat down, which she said she had to drain first, got her broom, and helped me. The things that don't happen to me, eh? I never get my fortune told. I got these girlfriends that are always getting their fortune told, and I say, never mind me. There's one thing I know, and it ain't good. I went upstairs and phoned the university, trying to get Hugo. I told them it was an emergency, and they found him in the library. It did flood. What? It did flood. Dottie's place is underwater. I turned the pump on. Like hell you did. This morning you turned it on. This morning there was a downpour, and the pump couldn't handle it. That was after I turned it on. Pump couldn't handle it last night because the pump wasn't on last night. Why don't you talk to me about any downpour? Well, there was one. You were asleep. You have no idea what you've done, do you? You don't even stick around to look at it. I have to look. I have to cope. I have to listen to that poor woman. Then plug your ears. Shut up, you filthy moral idiot. I'm sorry. I was kidding. I'm sorry. Sorry. You're bloody sorry. This is the mess you've made, and I told you you'd make it, and you're bloody sorry. I have to go to a seminar. I am sorry. I can't talk right now. It's no good talking to you now. And I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm just trying to get you to realize. All right. All right. I realize. Though, I still think it happened this morning. You don't realize. You never, ever realize. You dramatize. You dramatize. I do. Our luck held. Dottie's mother was not so likely as Dottie to do without explanations, and it was, after all, her floor tiles and wallboard that were ruined. But Dottie's mother was sick. The cold, wet weather had undermined her, too. She was taken to the hospital with pneumonia that very morning. Dottie went to live in at her mother's house to look after the boarders. The basement had a disgusting, moldy smell. We moved out, too, after a short time. Just before Clea was born, we took the house in North Vancouver, belonging to some friends who had gone to England. The quarrel between us subsided in the excitement of moving. It was never really resolved. We did not move much from the positions we had taken on the phone. I said, you don't realize, you never realize. And then he said, what do you want me to say? Why do you make such a fuss over this, he asked reasonably. Anybody might wonder. Long after I was away from him, I wondered too. 
I could have turned on the pump, as I have said, taking responsibility for both of us as a patient, realistic woman. A really married woman would have done that, as I am sure Mary Frances would have done, did many times during the ten years she lasted. Or I could have told Dottie the truth, but she was not a very good choice to receive such information. I could have told somebody if I thought it was that important, pushed Hugo out into the unpleasant world and let him taste trouble, but I didn't. I was not fully able to protect or expose him, only to flog him with blame, desperate sometimes, feeling I would claw his head open and pour my vision into it, my notion of what had to be understood. What presumptuous, what cowardice, what bad faith, unavoidable. You have a problem of incompatibility, the marriage counselor said to us a while later. We laughed till we cried in the dreary municipal, municipal hall of the building in North Vancouver, where the marriage counseling was dispensed. That is our problem, we said to each other. What a relief, incompatibility. I did not read Hugo's story that night. I left it with Clea, and as she turned out, did not read it either. I read it the next afternoon. I got home about two o'clock from the girls' private school, where I have a part-time teaching history. I made tea, as I usually do, and sat down at the kitchen to enjoy an hour before the boys, Gabriel's sons, get home from school. I saw the book still lying on top of the refrigerator. I took it down to read Hugo's story. The story is about Dottie, of course. She has changed in some unimportant ways. The main incident concerning her has been invented or grafted from some other reality. But the lamp is there and the pink Chanel dressing gown, and something about Dottie that I had actually forgotten. When you were talking, she would listen with her mouth slightly open, nodding, and then she would chime in on the last word of your sentence with you. A touch of irritating. She was in such a hurry to agree, she hoped to understand. Hugo has remembered this, and when did Hugo ever talk to Dottie? That doesn't really matter. What matters is that this story of Hugo's is a very good story, as far as I can tell. And I think I can. How honest this is, and how lovely, I had to say as I read. I had to admit, I was moved by Hugo's story. I was, I am, glad of it. I am not moved by tricks. Or if I am, they have to be really good tricks. Lovely tricks, honest tricks. There is Dottie, lifted out of life and held in light, suspended in the marvelous clear jelly that Hugo has spent all his life learning how to make. It is an act of magic. There's no getting around it. It is an act, you might say, of a special, unsparing, unsentimental love. A fine and lucky benevolence. Dottie was a lucky person. People who understand and value this act might say. Not everybody, of course, does understand and value this act. She was lucky to live in that basement for a few months and eventually to have this done to her, although she doesn't know what has been done and wouldn't care for it, probably, if she did. She has passed into art, with a capital A. It doesn't happen to everybody. Don't be offended. Ironical objections are a habit with me. I'm half ashamed of them. I respect what has been done. I respect the intention and the effort and the result. Accept my thanks. I did think that I would write a letter to Hugo. All the time I was preparing dinner and eating it and talking to Gabriel and the children, I was thinking of a letter. I was thinking I would tell him how strange it was for me to realize that we shared, still shared, the same bank of memory, and for what was all scraps and oddments, useless baggage to me, was ripe and usable, a paying an investment for him. 
Also, I wanted to apologize in some not outright way for not having believed he would be a writer. Acknowledgement, not an apology. That's what I owed him. A few graceful, grateful phrases. At the same time, at dinner, looking at my husband Gabriel, I decided that he and Hugo are not really so unalike. Both of them have managed something. Both of them have decided what, every, what to do about everything they run across in this world, what attitude to take, how to ignore or use things. In their limited and precarious ways, they both have authority. They are not at the mercy, or they think they're not. You can't blame them for making whatever arrangements they can make. After the boys had gone to bed and Gabriel and Clea had settled in to watch television, I found a pen and got the paper in front of me to write my letter, and my hand jumped. I began to write short, jabbing sentences that I had never planned. This is not enough, Hugo. You think it is, but it isn't. You are mistaken, Hugo. That is not an argument to send through the mail. I do blame them. I envy and despise. Gabriel came to the kitchen before he went to bed, and he saw me sitting with a pile of test papers and my marking pencils. He might have meant to talk to me, to ask me to have coffee or a drink with him. But he respected my unhappiness, as he always does. He respected the pretense that I was not unhappy but preoccupied, burdened with these test papers. He left me alone to get over it. 